Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead. It's a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about The Dispossessed, which is Ursula K. Le Guin's 1974 science fiction novel about a physicist from an anarchist or communist or both colony on a moon in another solar system who goes to visit the decidedly capitalist planet his ancestors had fled 150 years before. And we are super excited to welcome to our pod the wonderful guest host for this episode, Hilary Strang, who is the director of the MA program in Humanities at the University of Chicago, and our friend, comrade, scholar, teacher, and someone who knows a ton about sci-fi. So, uh, Hilary, will you tell us a bit about your literary or academic interests, like why you wanted to talk about Le Guin? Sure. Um, so, uh, well, first of all, I uh, thanks for having me. Um, I love your podcast, and this is an honor to be here with you. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, is a, sure. it is a poor substitute for getting to see uh, you in person, but you know, it's nice. It's nice to get a chance to talk, um, and I'm super excited to talk about this novel. I was really happy that Tristan asked me if I'd want to be on the show with you all because this is one of my favorite novels. Um, so that's a kind of uh, fanish response, not an academic uh, or scholarly one. Um, it's also a book that I teach a lot. I teach it uh, in a couple of different contexts, um, classes when I'm getting people to talk with me about utopian science fiction. Um, I often introduce it to students in a kind of, um, this is a joke, uh, by saying it is the uh, greatest novel of the second half of the 20th century, um, which I, is, a, is a joke because, um, you know, I just like, I don't give a shit about like literary quality. And, you know, it's not literature, it's science fiction. That is just a way of also, saying like- people lose their shit when you say the greatest- Exactly. Anything of anything. Exactly. It's like a hilarious <laughs> provocation, you know, like people yeah, write it yeah. down like, oh my God, really? Uh, but what about Gravity's that? Rainbow? Um, <laughs> what about Catching Which, the Rye, you know, right? <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, full disclosure, I also like Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, so anyway. but well, I always say it's Invisible Man, and then they kind of go, oh, that could be right. We'll go on to the front. So. <laughs> it's a serious book. But but really, like what I think this book is, is a kind of theory of utopia, uh, as well as um, a really beautiful sort of uh, playing out of the capacity that science fiction has for um, letting us um, not so much imagine other worlds, although it for sure does that, but re-encounter our own world. Um, and I think also... Uh, do a kind of really important work of denaturalizing for us the kinds of relations that we live in every day. So opening up a new kind of horizon of possibility um, as we think about like why we live the way we do and what it might mean to live with each other in ways that were better. Um, so yeah, so I, I love this book. It it, it does fit with my um, academic interests, but I think my uh, you know, my love for Le Guin long precedes and definitely like um, exceeds whatever like minor claim I have to having academic interests. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, I am new to this book. Um, I couldn't wait to try it. I'm a neophyte to science fiction. Um, although I actually read A Wizard of Earthsea probably 25 years ago, which was which I loved. But yeah. 
have just not encountered much since then. Mm. Much much um, better than the uh, the other wizard book the other series. Wizard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, and there are like five books. You could still do the the whole. Th- you could binge it. Uh, and then there's like no reason not to read science fiction it's just like sometimes when you get into loops of what you consume you just do the same thing over and over especially when you're like over 25 Mm -hmm. Um, and then but we've also talked about like form and genres on the show and one of the things I found about reading a genre is that like allowing your brain to be cool with its conventions and so like my most sort of jerky dumb person's version of this is like the first time I read an unflipped manga so it reads like you start uh it it reads like Hebrew it reads like we would think of as back to front and how I just had to like I'm gonna let my mind go with this man I'm just gonna (laughs) give it a whirl see if I can like loosen up my sense of what a convention is (laughs) and I know from talking to lots of people that this book and also 70s sci-fi in general have cool thoughts about politics. I honestly was like, I know this novel is 400 pages, but I still couldn't believe how much it took on. Mm. Yeah. Uh, like, it's just stuffed. Like, it has all these political thoughts, all these questions about institutions. It takes on these problems about the relationship between the subject and its material conditions. It's just it's just really packed and I love that. Um, it loves the word solidarity and I'm mm-hmm. also a huge fan. <laughs> uh, this book like also super fucked me up because imagining a world without like prisons and what the Adonians say about how there have to be laws for there to be criminals reminds me of how inequality is produced it's produced not just in the structures that we sort of like all think about but also in norms and mm-hmm. i don't know if that makes sense at all but that's mm-hmm. just something i've mm-hmm. been thinking about a lot no definitely and i i think that this book is kind of acutely aware of that problem you know um and uh yeah no and and i so yeah i'm i'm also super excited to to read this um i just want to say it was a listener request so shout out to to michael who uh hillary i believe is also a listener of your (laughs) your pod i know he's a listener of your pod yeah michael michael is wonderful he is no he's yeah very much um and no and and this was a great suggestion um and one i think we we were all really happy to do um you know i i uh and and one reason i really wanted to read like when for a while hillary is because of my conversations with with you um frankly um you know sci-fi it was i was into sci-fi a lot when i was younger um and then i just didn't kind of pick it up for a long time like in grad school i was reading a bunch of 18th century fiction and frankly when or you know theory and frankly when i wasn't reading for academic work i was watching television Uh (laughs) oh yeah i was just playing bioshock which i know katie also played first person shooters (laughs) as your alternative yeah yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I did. I did a little bit of that, too. Um, but I, I've, I've gotten back into to it, reading, you know, reading sci- science fiction. Um, and and, you know, I have to say not that I think that your political interests uh, or convictions and your, you know, the art and literature you like have to align neatly. Um, I mean, I don't think that's true. But I, I do actually think my politics have played a role in like why I'm getting back into it. Um, for, exactly for the reasons that, that um, you talked about, Hillary, uh, you know, and, and we when we did the time machine 
campaign uh, several months ago, um, you know, something we talked about was a lot of, of leftist critics are into sci-fi precisely for, you know, yeah, that it lets you think critically about society and social structures at a, at a macro level that aren't always the part of um, other forms of the novel. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, and, and also Hillary, uh, as you know, I'm I'm a big fan of your Marooned on Mars podcast about uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's books uh, that that you do with our other uh, very good friend Matt Halska. Um, and and one thing I really like about your show is that you spend so much time talking about exactly those kinds of things. Um, and and I thought this was phenomenal. I love this book. Um, you know, the Anarchist Communist Society of Inaris is compelling and utopian in, in in a lot of ways. But I also think, um, and what I re- one thing I really appreciated was that Le Guin's not afraid to. Explore um, challenges to the cohesion of a society like that. That, mm-hmm. that I think helps Marxists and other radicals think critically about what are the ultimate aims of our own kind of political visions. Yes, indeed, I agree with everything that that you two said, and I also think that there's a there was a practical purpose for me in reading this, which is I know that the SpaceX thing is really taking off. I know that Elon <laughs> Musk is taking this seriously, and so. <laughs> I, I think that we all need to be prepared for that. And also <laughs> to get on a ship I, with really soft beds. <laughs> yes. That was a striking moment at the beginning. Uh, also the, the, I'd like, I liked hanging out with sad indigo children. So this was pretty much like right on from page one. I was into it, very into it. Uh, Like Megan, I had some regrets reading this that I have not dorked out over sci fi much more seriously. Uh, And so I'm going to rectify that in in my future life, maybe on this planet, maybe on others. Uh, but the last big giant book I read about another planet was, was Dune a couple years ago. And I just ripped up, I ripped right on through it. And uh, I was like, Oh yeah, I'd love to ride around in the desert on uh, drug worms. That sounds great. 12 year old boy may loved Dune, but I've been afraid to go back to it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> You never know what you're going to go back to. And it's, I, you know, when I read The Secret Garden recently, I was like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. right. A little disturbing. <laughs> a little dis- that was a distressing book. Or, you know, Little House on the Prairie where they, like, literally kill Osages. I was like, uh-huh. oh, yep. no. Yeah. Oh, no. You can never go home again. <laughs> that is what they say. That is what they say. But, Tristan, have no fear. If you want to revisit Dune... Um, 30 year old me really enjoyed herself (laughs) Uh, (laughs) unfortunately though i had high expectations because there are like so many books in the series and i'm thinking oh this is going to be so great i can i'm occupied forever and then sort of things unfold we have this worm prophet and a lot of fluids (laughs) that aren't water Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) yep uh you know what i'm talking about and it's a real it's a real bummer and so i i was oh sorry no i was just gonna say my other understanding is the more of those billion books you read the more fascistic the series becomes too so yeah that's that is my long ago memory of it well i didn't make it that far (laughs) (laughs) you're like that's enough worms for me thank you (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I I know when to fold them. Uh, <laughs> but there was some some fear of getting my heart broken again. But in fact, my heart has only grown. It's expanded much like the Grinches at the end of that thing. Because um, it's just it's like, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a difficult book in a lot of ways. 
but it's also so heartening to read. And it's also just so often sweet. And among all of this world building and all of these social structures and all these like these utopian things that that we want and these rousing speeches we also get this sweet family stuff and also we learn so much about about toilets and other worlds (laughs) and uh (laughs) interplanetary toilets are now an interest of mine and It just asks really, really good questions about what it means to be a person who wants things. And especially when one of the things that you want is to live in a collectivist society Hmm. so that all of the desire and need that makes it possible to to come to some kind of revolutionary change, then then there's friction to that in the final form. And so. This is just like a grab bag of stuff, but that's that's that was sort of my my main uh, excitement about reading this. And also, even on other worlds, academics remain clout sharks who try to try to get co authorship credit. That, you know, <laughs> steal your work. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and so it felt familiar in that way. They got to be dickheads everywhere with like the nice person being like where are all the women <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah exactly yes. exactly where are the women on your world so today we're talking about the anarchist logic of the family and other institutions we're going to talk about isolation of societal isolation as a factor here and then we're going to talk about certain wrenches in social organization like the drought that is significant to the second half of this book so, Hillary, will you just give us a quick summary? Sure. I mean, I, I think that your opening summary was actually great, right? We can just say like, okay, so it's a book about a guy named Shevak who is a physicist and he lives on a planet called Anurus that has um, a anarcho-communist social organization uh, because of various frustrations um, and desires he leaves Anaris to go to another planet called Eurus, uh, which seems to be um, a, a capitalist society that looks uh, not unfamiliar, um, a place where luxury, among other things, matters a great deal. He finds himself, I think it's probably not right to say, disillusioned with life on Eurus, um, uh, but finds it to be a complicated uh, place to be the person that he is there. Um, he is there long enough um, to see the beginnings of what might be a revolution, and then he returns home. So I would say, having said that kind of basic summary, I think that this is a novel that actually um, it doesn't give itself over very well to to plot summary. And a lot of that is because um, a lot of how the novel works is in its structure and in what I'm just going to kind of say is the subtlety of the way in which it reconfigures what we might think of as um, certain kinds of key terms through which we would describe like what a character is. So in that version that I just gave, I said Shevik is a physicist. Of course, this is a completely wrong way to describe him, right? Nobody on Anaris is their job. Um, nobody has a title. Um, nobody just does uh, the one thing that they spent the most time in school learning how to do. Um, physics is something that Shevik does. It's not really a profession in any way. 
Um, and part of why he wants to go to Eurus is because he thinks he wants to be in a place where it could be a profession. Uh, you know, Anaris, this anarcho-communist society, I, I think that's a good description of it. But at the same time, I think the book asks us to really think about and um, kind of encounter what anarchism is or what anarcho-communism is or might be or could be. Um, Anaris is, of course, and Meg, I think you said this at the beginning, is not a planet. It's a moon. So the initial picture that you have, it's a moon of Eurus. Um, and Eurus mm-hmm. is not the only nation state on the planet. Um, in fact, there are multiple nation states on the on the planet that Shevik travels to. Um, uh, so you can see that there's this kind of uh, what the novel gives you at first, it looks like, okay, we've got two opposing worlds, um, actually becomes increasingly complicated the more that you look at it. And the other thing I would say is that the form of the the form of the novel, I think, matters a lot. Like, rather than having a linear narrative, I mean, I think just like in the kind of linear narration, truly not very much happens. There isn't a kind of like climactic point. There are some scenes that have a lot of intensity around them, um, but there isn't really a climactic point to the novel. And there isn't really the kind of like dramatic transformation that you might expect from a story that's about like a guy going from one world to another world, right? In fact, at the end, we just know that he's going back um, and we don't really know what's going to happen. Um, but the other thing about the form of the novel is it cuts between the novel's present, beginning with Shevik getting on the shuttle to head to Eurus, and the past, the past of Shevik's own life. Um, and we get a kind something that, you know, in some ways feels like a kind of um, Bildungsroman there, right? A story of like how Shevik comes to be Shevik. Although in other ways, I think it's much less, the, the, the chapters in the past are much less flashbacks to prior moments in Shevek's life than an opportunity for the reader to come to understand Anaris um, through the kind of like growing set of perceptions that a child growing into an adult has of the world that they live in. Um, and that back and forth movement, which happens chapter by chapter in the novel, uh, produces, I think, rather than a kind of like um, linear trajectory and an emphasis on story, it instead produces an emphasis on simultaneity. Um, so uh, um, on parallels between things and the ways in which the parallels that we want to draw between things often fail. And it keeps the reader in a position of um, themselves moving back and forth between worlds, between temporal moments. Um, in a way that keeps us, I think, uh, you know, coming increasingly to understand what we're looking at and also keeps estranging us from what we're looking at in ways that I think are are quite key to the way that the novel wants us to think. So that was like abstract, but a summary. No, that, that I think that that works great, um, and and I completely agree with you that about it, the the ways in which it I think very intentionally sort of resists that kind of like oh like this is the key moment, um, mm-hmm. but sort of asks you to read back and forth between you know you know between time periods and everything else. Um, I just had two uh, kind of like geographical questions, like astronomical questions, maybe in the sense, <laughs> but one like yeah, so Anaris I'm the right is person the person to ask, Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just you know you what just know a little bit, like. you, you just know a lot more about like kind of like. like 
liquid sort of like uh, world yes, imagining I <laughs> that I do. Yes. Uh, but one is that, yeah, like, so Anaris is a moon of, of Uras, uh, but we get, but it, it, it's very strange. And we know that because uh, largely because, um, you know, it's much smaller. It doesn't have the gravity to, to the, the biosphere that it's able to like trap is, is, uh, is, is pretty fragile because it's just a much smaller world. I think also um, Shevik is, is big because he's had, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, by the standards of Uras because he, um, you know, the gravity, he hasn't, you know, less gravity, like you, you can grow taller. Um, but, but I thought it was really funny that uh, on Adaris, they refer to Uras as the moon, you know, mm-hmm. rather than it, like that they, that they're, they're not going to like uh, let that sort of terminology, like it, it, it establish some sort of like superiority from the, mm-hmm. the kind of mm-hmm. home world as it were. Um, but the other, but the other, actually the question I had um, just, I, I know that, um, so uh, just from reading around like when um, this idea of uh, like a, a lot of her novels, uh, this planet, the, uh, Hain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that like had so the basically the the world that we read in this also Earth, which is called uh, Terra, I think in this Terra. universe. Um, they were they were colonized many many millennia ago by these kind of humans from this other planet system, and I think where this picks up uh, is um, that basically like like contact has just been reestablished within the last several decades. Is that is that correct? Right. So. Um- uh, Le Guin wrote a bunch of novels and short stories set in what is now often referred to as the Hainish universe. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think I would, in like a fussy way, sort of resist referring to it as a universe, which makes us think of the Marvel Comics universe. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, because actually, uh, from novel to novel and story to story, set in this larger sort of conceit of a universe there are some major variations that Le Guin um, produces and produced over the long period of time that she was writing novels set in that universe. But we, for convenience sake, we can call it a universe. So yeah, the Hainish are like, I mean, one, the easiest way to think about them is as a kind of the classic like SF um, conceit of a sort of like an ancient, an ancient people um, who mm-hmm. then have seeded um, humankind around the galaxy, right? Okay. Um, it is not totally clear um, from the Hainish novels whether uh, that is in fact something that happened or whether that's like something that people on other worlds who meet the Hainish suspect. Um, whether they were in fact, occasionally they're talked about as though, you know, in like, you know, whatever eons and eons ago, they were kind of like going around, like experimenting on like, how would human life develop in this kind of world? How would human life develop Mm. on this kind of world? Um, but it's, it's not actually clear that they did that. Right. Um, what is clear is that there are planets, um, all over the galaxy that, um, have, um, forms of life on them that are human and all have something in common and that the Hainish have organized a kind of like large scale federation of worlds. Uh, the weirdness of which is it doesn't particularly ask anything of any of the planets that come into the federation. Only It only asks of them a kind of openness to being interested in other planets. So, and in this novel particularly, I think, you know, we meet, we meet a Hainishman at the, toward right. the end. Um, and, you know, he's clearly important because he's, he's going to be on the shuttle heading back to Anaris. Um, right. But in some ways, the Hainish are not super important to this novel. 
although I think it is really important and it's a really interesting kind of like, again, a sort of like broadening or refiguring or estranging of one's perspective when we realize um, that there is that this planet called Terra is Earth um, and that mm-hmm. it must exist within our own historical continuum because there's a reference to Einstein. Um, and yeah. and the Shevex, like theoretical physics, has some overlap with, with general relativity, right? So, yeah. um, and and toward the end, we you know when we meet the Terran ambassador, um, we you know we learn that like basically like um, surprise surprise, the human beings who uh, lived on Terra have completely fucked up the planet, and it's a total yeah. environmental disaster. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so, I, I don't wonder how the fuck that happened, right? Yeah. Like, you know, um, like. So, uh, but but you know, like I I think that that matters, and it it matters that you know uh, it matters that there is nothing here, so that there's some sense that like okay, being human names something, and it allows for some kinds of commonality, um, but at the same time, like people are really deeply deeply shaped by the place where they grow and where they live. Um, And so on the one hand, we have a kind of picture of a universe in which it's possible to get from planet to planet quite rapidly. But on the other hand, we also have a picture of a universe in which humans, like other animals, like other living things, are deeply environmental, are planetary creatures, um, whatever this kind of like dream of mobility might be. And have to like that it's as important as anything else that they're sort of like narrating their emergence right so it's like the the story of how they become a people mm-hmm. is so essential and they even have mm-hmm. you know we have odo we have our like narrator of of our uh it's it's mean to say ideologic ideology that's not really what i mean but like the story of how that society yeah. comes to operate yeah. yeah yeah and i mean and it's you know it is a absolutely key. I mean, maybe this is something we'll get back to, but it's really like key to the novel that Odo's theories, which are more than theories. I mean, it's, you know, like she wrote and seems to have like been instrumental in the beginning of a a revolution, um, as well as, as like the possibility of people getting to Inaris and being able to set up a society on principles that they found society is like the wrong word, but whatever, like being able to live based on principles that matter to them. Um, but Odo's, all of Odo's writing, all of her theorizing, her politics, you know, and she writes from prison, right? Um, all of that is done on Eurus in a completely different world. Um, and one of the sort of struggles on Anaris is that their world is different. Um, and the, the novel is quite complex and what it asks you to think about that. Like it doesn't suggest that thus it's wrong or they should have come up with their own theories based on the sort of ecology in which they come to live. Um, what it suggests is actually that like that ill fit between the thinking about anarchism that could be produced on this like overstuffed planet that is Eurus, mm-hmm. the ill fit between that and the uh, extraordinary society of scarcity on um Anaris is actually quite productive, right? That that becomes a sort of opening up to having different ideas about what might happen, what could happen, where the sort of horizon of possibility is. 
Yeah, definitely. And I just, a minor detail, but uh, when Shevik is uh, kind of doing this sort of space tourism early in the novel, when he, he really wants to see the prison where Odo wrote her, uh, her, 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 uh, her political vision, I thought that was, uh, that was, I mean, I yeah. would do that, you know, <laughs> like if I. Yeah, if well, I and, they, and they're like, oh, oh, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And then, of yeah. course. But, but then it does it actually does exist, exist, right? Yes. Like it's yes. yeah. uh So what do you think? I don't know. What else should we know context wise? Uh, I mean, I think the the sort of co- the context that this is a novel that Le Guin wrote in a like larger sequence of novels, I think is worth thinking about. And I would really the um, all of the Hainish stuff is like really great. I think you know, like the the early stuff, um, you know, has um, aspects of it that um, is like a little I don't know less subtle than some of the stuff in the dispossessed but I think that sort of sequence of novels and stories all are really awesome to read together for those who would be interested in reading more Le Guin you know uh something I I think is important to think about with Le Guin so she starts writing in like the early 60s I guess um she probably started writing earlier than that, but I think she starts publishing in the early 60s. I may be getting those dates wrong. She was born right after the First World War. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, um, she uh, is very much in the position of the kind of um, woman writer who has kids and is like <laughs> writing as part of like developing a kind of practice of her own. Um, If you get like early editions of her novels, her bio, and this this is actually true, her bio not only says the name of her husband, but also her dad's name. Mm. I I mean, just like... uh, (laughs) Same thing. (laughs) Wow. Um, And, uh, but you know, she was publishing, I I would want to emphasize that she's publishing... Um, as did the generation of feminist science fiction writers who kind of are writing basically at the same time as she is, but are substantially younger than her. She's publishing, you know, like mainstream with mainstream SF publishers, right? I mean, that she's a woman, you know, that she's writing about like anarchism and Taoism, right? Like none of that is like making her marginal. Um, This is just what SF is starting in the late 60s and at least through the 70s. Um, This very political... Uh, like very kind of like uh, radically political um, mode of writing. Um, the other thing I would say about Le Guin that I think is really important to her, which you all probably know, is that her dad was an anthropologist, uh, Alfred Krober, Theodore Krober, um, whose work was on. So she grew up in California. He taught at Berkeley, I believe, for a long time. And his work was on... Um, the indigenous people of California. Um, he's most famously associated with Ishi, uh, quote, Ishi, last of his tribe, ah, supposedly yes. the wow. final survivor of um, a particular indigenous group. Whether that was true or not is, um, uh, I, I believe, kind of up for debate. Uh, Le Guin's mother wrote a book about Ishi. Uh, Krober, her dad, did a lot of, I think, significant work, um, but also in some ways, like the work that both of her parents did contributed to, um, uh, you know, a kind of dominant American idea that indigenous people um, were either already dead or on their way toward being dead. Um, Is he one of those people who did the sort of like linguist, like linguistics, anthropological stuff too? Like he was interested in languages? 
Mm-hmm, he did. And I, I, I think that like a lot of that work, um, and, and in the end, like he also become, I believe that he ended up doing like a lot of expert witness stuff in land cases, like on the side, on the side of the, uh, tribes, um, in lawsuits with the government. Um, but Le Guin's work, um, I think, I, really, I think all of it, I think we could probably even see this in the Wizard of Earthsea novels, which are written for children or for young adults. Her work is very much in a kind of critical dialogue with like the anthropological imaginary. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I think that, you know, there, there are novels where this is like much more obvious than it is here. Um, but I, I think she was always asking not just um, what does it mean or what does it look like or what does it feel like to encounter um, otherness, right? Um, she was also always asking, what is it that, what are the presuppositions, um, the ideas um, that the, obser- the supposed neutral observer brings to the encounter um, with difference or with the other? And what are the ways in which those presuppositions, those ideas, those ideologies mean that that observation is never pure. Uh, it's always like bound up in a set of uh, whatever, in a set of expectations. It makes me think too about like the, 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 the person who encounters SF without, with bad background, you know, like knowing nothing thinks about co- the colony as a sort of like mm-hmm. figure <laughs> in science fiction, but it's, it's not just that Le Guin is like, that's a, that's a question, like whether to what degree a colony is a colony and is stable and is like um, permanent or, or coherent in any way that seems to be like, I mean, I want to be really, really careful about talking about the way that like the U S is a colonial, like to, a, to, you know, we know it's a settler colony and isn't, right now decolonized but that the relationship of the anthropologist to the indigene is one of like the colonial condition and so like that Le Guin can say like oh we might be able to think about this more carefully is not the not the sort of like ideological expectation we have of science fiction I I think that's right I think that there is um a so you know if we if we think about um one kind of the so-called golden era of science fiction, the era sort of um, particularly following the Second World War. Um, you know, honestly, I think if you start reading science fiction there I and, and you are a person who, I don't know, is like a woman or a person of color or, you know, a leftist, you'd just be like disgusted and never care. <laughs> never read anymore. Uh, and there are tons and tons of fantasies that are are quite explicitly, you know, colonial slash imperial stories. Um, the, the, the writings of L. Rod Hubbard, too, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Period. And then, and then, like lots of you know, and like lots of people who are like, I mean, much better writers than L. Ron Hubbard. Um, and there's a strong like. Um, there, I mean, and there are versions of that still in SF writing today. And I'd also say that there is like a strong libertarian streak in the history yeah. of science fiction, um, uh, uh, which, you know, whatever, like does tend to give itself over to imagining very easily that it's possible to encounter a world that is in fact empty, that one could just have, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, yeah. And I, I think something that's really quite interesting about this 
novel is that so the yeah the anaresti like get given this moon um, but the moon is of course empty or at least we think that right. and then we learn that actually it was a mining colony of urus mm-hmm. and that it is still a mining colony of urus so this is another way in which we get i mean so there are not indigenous people on the moon right but there are people right. who are living there and at some point like um i don't can't remember somebody like sings a song that is like a song from like the mining camps where people are still working and they are living in their own way. Like they're not part of an arresting society. Um, And it's another way in which we get this kind of reframing what we took to be like, okay, this is a world. I get what a world is. I'm learning about the way in which people live on this world. Suddenly we have this glimpse that people are living in another way there also. Right. Um, and I think it becomes possible to ask questions about like, you know, what does it look like to try to make, I mean, this is like a huge question here, but like, what does it look like to try to make a way of life from the ground up to the extent that you're going to yeah. make up an entirely new language, right? Mm-hmm. What does that yeah. look like? And here we have the capacity to imagine doing that, not in a place where there are already people who we have to imagine away or we have to say like, you know, they don't really count as people, um, but on a place that's empty. And in some ways it's empty because like, you know, like Anaris like sucks. It's like a terrible place to live. Yeah, <laughs> it's sure. a terrible place to live, you know? And also like people are bad at do. I mean, it's not every person. It's just that it's a, there's a different thing between imagine like a being together and the degree to which people are good at that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause we're not, yeah. not always, and they're not always good at it either. Yeah, no, they're, they're not always good at it. And it's, it is hard to separate the, the cohesion from the actual place itself. And mm-hmm. it's, that like that's the ambiguous utopia thing because of course that's the dream to be able to start a new world where in fact you're not trampling on people you're not stealing you're not you're not you know massacring no, none of that and it turns out that the place you have to do it is like a shitty dry moon yeah yeah and- <laughs> so it's yeah yeah, well, and and that that's interesting too. That's the, I, yeah, like I I thought that was really interesting. Cutting in sort of two ways. One is that it, uh, yeah. So the the fact that an RS, yeah, it's basically like Mars that with the, but warmer and with a thicker atmosphere and, mm-hmm. and and some bodies of water on the surface, right? Like that's I think that like yeah, like very few plants live. There are no animals. There are no land animals. That's a big thing that they talk about a lot. Uh, like a like Shevik has never seen a squirrel or something like that when he goes to to Uris. But but so like that. There are no skin- pet otters. There are no pet otters. There are no there, pet yeah, otters. There's no- the one reason to live on Uris. You get a fucking pet otter. <laughs> the pet otter. Yeah. I love the pet otter. I got it. Say. I know it does not extremely cool, um, but uh, cooler than cooler than my dopey cats. But uh, the uh, no, the, uh, the, the the scarcity actually produces. Um, I mean, the, the scarcity is important to, towards like producing the kind of communal cohesion, right? Because we all like there there is work that has to be done communally to make this sort of a habitable place. Um, but I also think too that like because because I think that like you know. 
know, one of the great myths of like capitalism, right, is that like scarcity is the inescapable problem of humanity. And it's basically like it's the condition that's going to cause us all to become like murderous animals uh, if we don't have like some sort of order imposed on us. And it's like, well, no, that that quite quite the opposite. And in fact, Eurus, which like Shevik's descriptions of or, or the the narrator's descriptions of Shevik's impressions are like it's this extremely rich land of like just lush vegetation and and plenty. And yet that plenty actually is what produces severe inequality. Right. Um, right. It, it, it's right. not like plenty does not free humanity quite you know it, it it's actually the kind of like the, the 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 place of scarcity where the society is able to kind of cohere right and and you know this is again i think a really interesting point in relation to uh how much they base an society around odo's writings um this you know this is this thing that i'm just very obsessed with in this novel that like there is this ill fit between the kind of philosophy through which they're trying to live and the place where they're living. Um, but it's also like in the work that they do, um, the living toward Odo's philosophy and also the kind of like moving in, in many ways through the like material conditions of their lives, moving beyond it. Like it's in that kind of motion that Anaresti society exists, right? Rather than like in following like what Odo said, like a static series of laws or just trying to figure out like how best to live on this planet where all there are is like dust and a few fish and these um what are the trees called holum trees something like that yeah holum yeah. trees yeah which would sound like sound like they're like little pine scrubby bushes yeah, kind that, that's of that's what i picture that's what i picture too i don't picture anything lush no no um no. so Actually, this this raises a question that I had, which is about um, the like what we make of like the anaresti fixation on isolation. So, like when when Shevik decides that he's gonna he's gonna visit Urus. Um, there's like this is like a really contentious decision he actually like has rocks mm. thrown on him at thrown at him as he's mm. getting on the rocket to leave and some people are in favor of it some people want to reestablish contact but like we learned that like since the last um anaresti colonist um arrived 150 years ago other than like mining supplies being sent back and forth um it, it's been the moon has been closed off from from Uras. and a lot of people are like no if we open our society it's we're gonna imme- basically immediately get overwhelmed and i i mean so i had some questions about that because like on one hand i like i i'm a little bit like so there there is a like there is a like a strain in certain kinds of sort of like uh like i'm gonna shorthand it's like communist society the kind of like commune model that does like that like there's an upper limit on like the size that you could have like a sort of anarcho-communist model work right like if you have too many people just won't anymore um that that butts up pretty uncomfortably against sort of like uh the, the the more sort of like malthusian environmentalism right that we're like well we have too many people and it's like well right what the fuck are you saying when you say that you know like Mm -hmm. but but i did so i did i didn't quite know what to make of that like if that if Le Guin was like yeah i mean like this works you know pretty much in a world like anaris which is kind of closed off which has like a somewhat limited population and it wouldn't work if you expanded beyond that or if that's not actually a position the novel arrives at and the kind of anaresti who think of things that way are supposed we're supposed to read them as as wrong in some way i have a sort of related question tristan which is 
the way that I read it was that Gwen is maybe saying something like this is a society that's art or not a society, a collective that's already reached this place of strain that Mm -hmm. they've made it like you get that from these uh, from assignments, work, not, you know, again, it's hard to talk about anything concretely because it's not it's not necessarily coercive or maybe it is. We can talk about that. But things get handed down from on high because of need. So mm-hmm. it that made me ask whether or not this is maybe are is it already supposed to be too big? Is that part of what's is it are we taxing the bandwidth of it already? Yeah. Yeah. I, I that I don't I don't I don't know. And is that partly because people do seem to be starving at points? I mean, like that's yeah. It's it's I don't know. For me, it was like an extremely upsetting part of the novel is that a realization that people are starving and that there is some degree of inequality on Anara's. I mean, I think that, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, one thing I would say that's like a, a bad uh, non-answer is that in some ways, like like these are like exactly the the, the questions that the novel takes um to be open on Anaris. So, you know, that there is, I mean, I think you get this from that very, the very first scene when Shevik is getting, getting on the, the uh, ship. Right. Um, and the people are completely divided about what they think, whether this is like a good thing or not a good thing, or whether he's like betraying them. Uh, and we get that uh, moment in which the narrator tells us that, you know, this could be, um, like a mob, but like these people have no conception, you know, because there is no authority on this planet, like they, they don't act in the way that we would expect, right? We can't characterize it as a kind of mob, right? Um, instead, what we get is that like, there is this kind of like openness and indeterminacy. Um, and we see like throughout the novel, and then I, I think this kind of connects to the question about isolation, we see throughout the novel, that in some ways, like, the real risk on Anaris seems to be a kind of like calcification, right? So as we see with the syndicates, like particularly like with the physicists and with pub- with publishing, right? Significantly with publication, um, you get this kind of like um, the longer certain people inhabit a key position within a particular syndicate, the more a thing like bureaucracy and hierarchy can and in fact does emerge, right? Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, that emergence is also surrounded not only by like a sort of like freedom of debate, right? Um, but I think much more importantly by this for, it seems to be for most people, um, this very intense like embodied or like lived um, sense of themselves as Adonians, um, as people to whom like the critique of authority and power continues to matter, um, as people who have never encountered anything like law or like bureaucracy, right? So we have this kind of like opposition between the ways in which like life practice continues to produce people who are just a shorthanded Adonian, um, and also certain kinds of life practice and the way that they've organized things can produce people who stop acting like Adonians or take, you know, take Odo to have just like like given a set of precepts that people need to follow or whatever it may be, right? And it's in that tension 
uh, that there's the possibility of like thinking about how things um, can still become different, right? So I think the thing for I think the thing for the novel is that like Anaris is unfinished, it's open, right? Um, and like what this kind of anarchist life is is a kind of like commitment to the process of living together, which can include failing at it, right? And like the the, the big move that Shevek makes, right, to like leave leave and go to Eurus, um, is actually like is part of that, right? Part of this move toward a kind of openness that like things aren't done, right? So I just wanted to read a quick thing because I think this is really helpful for this, the questions we've been talking about with like <sighs> the individual and and being together, I guess, because we society's hard. But um, this is 333 and he says he recognized that need in adonian terms as his cellular function the analogic term for the individual's individuality the work he can do best therefore his best contribution to his society a healthy society would let him exercise that optimum function freely in the coordination of all such functions finding its adaptability and strength this was a central idea of Odo's analogy that the Adonian society on Anaris had fallen short of the ideal did not in his eyes lessen his responsibility to it just the contrary with the myth of the state out of the way the real mutuality and reciprocity of society and individual became clear so like and then there's this moment here where like only the individual the person had the power of moral choice the power of change the essential function of life the Adonian society was conceived as a permanent revolution. Oh, who does that come from? And revolution <laughs> begins in the thinking mind, right? right? So like, we all have this like, ah, I guess I found that reference. Like, that's my thing. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess like for me, I would say that that's a moment of sort of like, I actually really love this thing that Le Guin does where she's not like, I've come to a resolutory moment, but that she allows us to, you know, she sort of like pulls us back into this like, uh, a way of thinking you know she she says like here's a here's a thought about how this moment might be functioning but it's also like completely open-ended mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. yeah the vision of like utopia does not envision that like utopia means the end of like sort of working on the problem of mm -hmm. you know a, a just an equitable society that that is going to have to continue. It, it, it it's um it, you know so it's not like oh you you get to this anarcho communist model and then it's the end of history right it doesn't it doesn't well, actually no, utopia that. needs a ton of work yes um and, and so and 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 I think that like one the big the the episode in the in the book that we where we really see that I think has to do with the drought. Um, which is this many year long event that happens. I think it starts about midway through through the the novel. Like Shevik is an adult, and uh, you know, I think I think yeah, he actually has a family. Like right. uh, uh, he's you know, yeah, he's partnered and has a family. Um, and then this drought starts, um, which ends up splitting up his family. Like his his his, uh, his partner, she's a she does kind of marine biology, and so she gets a, this one uh, section of the planet. He gets set to the completely up at the other side of the planet. Um, it's actually pretty, I mean, really upsetting. I found mm -hmm. just 
mm-hmm. they've got a young child and they're separated for like four years. But so like this is after the draft. This is just uh, maybe like 20 pages or so, Megan, before the the point you uh, part you pointed us to. Um, and so Shevik is riding around the planet with this uh, this guy whose job is basically just to drive uh, like freight and passengers across this expanse of desert. And so they're having this conversation about basically what they did during the drought years. And so this is uh, this is part of what Shevik says. The second year I was in Elbow, that's the name of a settlement. Um, I was work lister, the mill syndicate cut rations, people doing six hours and the plant got full rations, just barely enough for that kind of work. People on halftime got three quarter rations. If they were sick or too weak to work, they got half. On half rations, you couldn't get well. You couldn't get back to work. You might stay alive. I was supposed to put people on half rations, people that were already sick. I was working full time, eight, 10 hours sometimes, desk work. So I got full rations. I earned them. I earned them by making lists of people who should starve. The man's light eyes looked ahead in the dry light. Like you said, I was to count people. You quit? Yes, I quit. Went to Grand Valley, but somebody else took over the list at that mills and elbow. There's always somebody willing to make lists. Now that's wrong, the driver said, scowling into the glare. He had a bald brown face and scalp, no hair left between cheeks and occupant, though he wasn't past his middle 40s. It was a strong, hard, and innocent face. That's dead wrong. They should have shut the mills down. You can't ask a man to do that. Aren't we Adonians? A man can lose his temper, all right. That's what the people who mob trains did. They were hungry. The kids were hungry, been hungry too long. There's food coming through and it's not for you. You lose your temper and go for it. Same thing with the friend. Those people were taking apart the train he was in charge of. He lost his temper and put it in reverse. He didn't count any noses, not then. Later, maybe, because he was sick when he saw what he'd done. But what they had you doing, saying uh, saying this one lives and that one dies, that's not a job a person has a right to do or ask anybody else to to do. That is a really it's almost a it's an it's an interesting way of understanding what cruelty is because cruelty mm-hmm. is not starvation. It's that's pain, but it's not it's not cruelty. The problem is not the conditions that they're in their conversation. The problem for them is what right somebody has to ask you to make decisions like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is, in a way, rebelling against authority and that that's the thing that is most crucial in this scene where there's all this, there's all this like blood and guts, like getting run over by a train. Yeah. And the yeah. issue is the, the the focal point of the conversation is the lists Mm-hmm. which is right. a different kind of cruelty right no absolutely and I, I think that's absolutely right and and yeah so like that those earlier moments that the driver was uh that the driver was talking about like yeah basically people had robbed like starving people had robbed like a grain a train with grain on it or something like that uh and, and you know like sort of taking away you know the, uh, uh, some sort of claim as a sort of local unit against like the broader society but but at the same time he's like that's understandable they're starving it the, it's the kind of the violence of the bureaucracy and the imposition of authority that right. that is that is the that is the serious um yeah that's like the, the kind of immorality of 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 uh, the way the society is developed in this kind of moment of crisis. Well, and one of the things that he has to quit is that he has earned it, right? Like that's actually like a really, really important moment is that like it doesn't matter at all. He has to quit in part because he has earned it, right? Like it has put him in a, in this position. R- yes, that's the that seems like the key thing because you 
don't earn your life. Right. Not in right. the order of this functional society. Right. And I, I think that that point that, Katie, the point that you made is really important to the novel, which which says in, a, I think, quite a very serious way that suffering is part of living. Um, and in mm -hmm. fact, on a few occasions, Shevik talks, and I think that this can't be, I think this is actually quite a complex idea, but he, he talks about suffering as the foundation of solidarity. Um, and I take that to be because there's this kind of full acknowledgement that humans are living creatures who have needs and are always mm -hmm. at risk of the possibility of need not being fulfilled. And that that is the condition of our living, not something to be wished away, um, not something that like utopia will resolve, but rather the thing that like one must learn to live in and through the acknowledgement sort of of your organismal being, of your natural being in this way. And I think this, you know, like that scene, the, the sort of the forming of this like authoritative or bureaucratic, or we could say biopolitical moment, right? Somebody's got to keep the lists. I mean, this can, I mean, it makes me think of like Kropotkin talks about um, if we are going to live by the principle that everybody needs to have what they need, we can't, which is the sort of the, the anarchist principle and the principle of revolution too, we can't start out by deciding that we're going to make a system for distributing the needs that people have, right? We're not going to make a system to fulfill it because if we've started there, we're not starting in that acknowledgement that to be a living creature means that you should have your needs fulfilled. And here we have this on this most basic level, right? Something gets imposed between the lives that people are living um, and what they need in order to be able to continue those lives. Um, and Laguna's mm -hmm. like, I mean, this it's like fucking harsh, right? I mean, she's like, yeah. you know, you are you are going to be living with the risk of death um, because mm -hmm. like that is what it is to be alive. Um, yeah. You know, this is like a real, I mean, it's a real like in that way, like take no prisoners, you know, <laughs> vision of what it means yeah. to like live with others. Yeah. And it also like really exposes how grotesque, I think for me at least, like that you're a, that the pe that there are people there who aren't scared of the wolf at your door and how grotesque that is, right? Mm -hmm. That there are all these people and they're sort of like the jewels um, that's all very like Hunger Gamesy. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> that like that is one of the impediments to that solidarity. It's not just that like they're rich, which of course is. Pro, like the a problem and proprietarian, but that they don't have the sense that they are organismal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think one thing. I mean, their lack of sense that they're uh, organismal has to do with this whole idea of, um, you know, it's something that Chevik says of several times during the novel which is um like i stretch out my empty hand because that's all that i have and their hands are full and so they don't have any need to stretch their hand out and that's also i think it does tie in with the idea of risk and need and connection and solidarity because we also get that that awful scene where 
he meets he's escaping from the this attack by uh you know like basically ground troops after he gives this speech um mm-hmm. and the he said this this man i was with got his hand blown off because he stretched it out to somebody else mm-hmm. and i think that it is sort of the same there's something in it that rhymes with the way that we might think about the administrative or bureaucratic cruelty because in a way it's like they you ha- when you give you have to protect your hand if you are uh if you're if you if there's like an organized thing to protect like if there's a bureaucracy to protect then the risks that you start taking look very different and have very different resonance and, and significance mhm I don't know what to do with all of that, but it's it's it seemed like one of the things that was so complicated for me reading it. Well, and it's also like the the I, I so I think that like a like a, a misperception of uh, anarchism or that that when that also goes to the kind of like sort of uh, uh, older meanings of the word before you have the kind of like uh, sort of like leftist Marxist kind of theories of it emerge in the late nineteenth century is that anarchism basically just means chaos, right? It means there's there's no there's no structure at all. It's just a free for all, and it's a uh, you know I mean before 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 it gets really kind of you know theorized as like as a as an actual politic um, that that's kind of the, the resonance that the word had. But but it's like but no, I mean, and I think that any sort of like anarcho communist is like you you had like there's there is like a broad sort of social agreement like there, it's not like there's no social glue it's that like what that glue is is not imposed by a legal structure um but and and i think i i, I can't remember who which of us said this but but the idea of like how nor like how norms butt up against law which also butt ups against something like power um i think mm-hmm. the drought really like fronts that right it's like okay we have a planet full of people everyone has to get enough to eat. How are we going to make that happen? And it's like the conditions produce just like the, 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 the fuel for like a bureaucracy to supply itself as the, as the, 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 um, you know, that mechanism, even though like the whole purpose of the society is to not organize itself around something like a bureaucracy. So it's like in the moment of crisis, we see how like norms and kind of common social agreements so easily get transformed into something that looks a fuck of a lot like a legal structure. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And I think it's uh, two things that I would sort of want to throw in. I mean, one, I think that one of the really brilliant things that the book does that in the, um, it surprised me the many times that I've taught this book, how often this gets kind of passed over, but like the way, the way that the way that they get um, distributed around Anaris to do what needs to be done um, is by is by a central computer, right? Which they call right. DivLab, yeah. which is also um, where they get their names from. Um, and I, I I think that this is a really like and you know often when I'm teaching it and like students notice that then they're like oh see it is it's like Big Brother or whatever but it's not Big no. Brother <laughs> it's like no. it, it the reason that they have DivLab um, is because. It is an it is not human and therefore a neutral way to to solve a kind of problem, which is like you've got people distributed all over this not very large moon, um, and you have to figure out how to send people to the places where there's work that needs to be done, and if that can be done impersonally, um, then it it's not going to be bureaucratized, right? That's the kind of picture of it there, and of course, like the 
bureaucracy comes in because then the people who work, you know, at the like, uh, whatever they call the labor offices can get like, you know, persuaded to say, send Shevek and Tokver to like two completely different places, which kind of, you know, it does kind of seem like the fix is a little bit in because mm-hmm, Shevek has yeah. made um, what's his name at the physics, the printing syndicate so mad. So I think that's one thing, which is a really, it's a really interesting kind of element here. And I love that it is so underplayed in the novel, um, mm-hmm. you know, but if you think about like Div Lab as an idea, it's, it's like an amazing also like a little jab at the idea <laughs> that like the division of labor as we experience it under capital is natural and just emerges from what human beings do yeah. naturally. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and it can even like account for, I don't know how you want to put this, like statistical outliers, like the people who don't want to do the thing that they're assigned right. to do, right? Who sort of move from place to place. Like it can account for that. Mostly yeah. people are going to sort of like follow the norm. And I mean, I love that too, that it's, that it's just like, yeah, there are going to be people who are weird. It's like, yeah. we can live like that. That's fine. <laughs> the other thing I loved about that, uh, about this too, is that like the idea that like specialization of labor is like, is, is well, it, 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 one, it just, it can't, it doesn't work in the society because everyone's got like, there is sort of like common work that must be done. And that means you, you do all kinds of different things, but it did like, kind of make me think like, and you know, I'm sure in the 1970s, like Gwen's thinking of this too, like, um, the, the spe- like the, the fallacy or the, the fantasy of neoliberalism, which is ever increasing hyper specialization. And it's like, no, that, that actually is like deeply upsetting and like oppressive thing that we've all just accepted is like the like oh the career is like such a like what career is is, is going to define you it's like that's actually kind right. of a fucked up idea you know right. and that all right. things could be like stitched together right like you your job your purpose your contribution that all yeah. those things are like one thing yeah right and i think you know for for all that it also like i mean you know this is like a real Le Guin kind of thing like i feel like her there's something in her novels that, you know, is like this deep sense of sort of like just sympathy, you know, and, yeah. and for, for all we get, I think exactly that, that sort of critique of specialization, of expertise, of profession that you guys are, are articulating really well, for all that we get that, we also have this sort of sympathy with the frustration of like, you know, Shevek has this thing that, that he he not only like loves doing it turns out he's like weirdly insanely good at it you know Mm -hmm. um and and we get and and that's a big part of what drives him to to europe i mean you know he has these like political larger scale collective motivations too but he has an individual motivation um you know which he has to like kind of come to terms with by actually being being on Eurus, right? And his individual motivation is like, uh, yeah, I want to be in a place where people take, you know, physics seriously. Um, yeah. But at the same time, right, like that, we, we're both like, that is treated in some ways gently. Like it is kind of like, it's like an understandable thing. And at the same time, like we get the sort of this strong critical sense of like, what it is that is disenabled by turning like, you know, knowledge into a source of status that those things, like Mm -hmm. if you, if what you want is to like have physics professors, 
you're going to have hierarchy, right? Um, yeah. And, and also mm-hmm. that probably means you're going to have wage labor too, right? To support yeah. those physics professors, you know, as we see yeah. on Eurus, right? And at the same time, like we get this kind of sympathy with the frustration that Shevek feels with the way in which he wants, you know, I mean, like how cool would it be to just get to sit in his little room by himself and like draw his little <laughs> yeah. physics pictures, um, yeah. you know, but of course his work, like the work in fact manifests itself only in and through this kind of like struggle with the limitations that he experiences. Right. Yeah. And the work is different yeah. than the like pleasure of doing it because the pleasure of doing it doesn't involve like publishing fights and Mm. like figuring out how many classes you have to take and like weird censorship you right like those things are like actually keep him from sort of like i don't want to say producing because all of a sudden like our language is actually not great at allowing us for to think of like what we make by doing things we like yeah um (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh, because that's like oh language itself is capital determined but that that's a that's that's a tension that the book doesn't think of itself as getting out of. No, right. it doesn't. Right. Oh no, I, I was just going to say I think it's interesting that uh, too that he like he wants to go to Uras right because like well I mean the, the problem like there are physicists on Anaris, but it's like the kind of theoretical physics he wants to do it doesn't have like uh, immediate ac- applicability to like the problems of the society and that or that that's kind of like what the physicists who don't like Shevik are saying and he's like oh but I can do that kind of pure life of the mind shit on Uras but then we find out the only reason the people on Uras invited him there was they're like we can fucking monetize this like this is right, going to let right. us develop a communication device to talk to anywhere in the in the galaxy so like he you know even the the idea that like oh I, this is a place where I can do that kind of life of the mind stuff it's like almost immediately like monetized in some way. I mean, and this seems to be very closely connected. I think this is like um, also connected to the kind of imagery that Katie was talking about earlier about the empty hand and what it what it means to to come with empty hands or to put your hand out to somebody else, right? In this gesture of openness and and emptiness, you know, when we like when we see little Shevek and the glimpses that we have of. Um, little children and the way that schooling works, we also see that despite the fact that, I mean, you know, this is, Anaris hasn't existed, they haven't existed for very long, right? They're only like mm-hmm. a couple of generations, I can't remember how many, into using this language, um, into living the way that they live. Um, and we see like, um, you know, one of the first images that we have of Shevek is like baby Shevek in his diaper, like, <laughs> reach reaching for the sun and the the beam of yeah. sunlight and the teacher moving him and being like <laughs> you know stop being proprietarian it's everybody's side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know we have this kind of like i mean it's like great you know and we see that again you know like when he wants to talk about ideas these teachers who have probably like learned odonianism in an overly rote way are like you're egoizing shevek even though he thinks he's you know that's not what he thinks. Right. But we see that the kind of like to like sort of uh, be the kind of subject um, to be an to be an Odonian is like never a done, never a done deal. Right. Proprietarianism mm-hmm. like can reemerge in all kinds of moments, you know, and when like we even see this in like the relationship between Shevik and Takver, 
where we learn that like being partnered is not really normal on Anaris and like keeping your children with you more than you send them out to school is really not normal on Anaris. And they have to think to themselves, like, why is it that they just want to be with each other, right? Why do they want to be partners? Um, We don't see that as just a kind of given. We don't see it as a bad thing. I think their relationship is quite moving in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also see that it is, you know, it's a way in which, like, they have to... Uh, you know, come to terms with how they're kind of like not living out certain of their principles by being with each other, or they run a risk of a kind of proprietarian closed offness from others by wanting to be partners, by wanting to be a couple. Well, and that like puts some pressure on, well, it maybe doesn't put pressure on it, but it calls attention to the question of like the property relations of the family and how that that has to be attention among them and, and with their children and I love this is like one of my favorite bits that there isn't you can't refer to your parents by propertarian <laughs> terms yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right so you say the mother yeah um, which is just like that's great yeah. um, <laughs> well that's right no I mean if there's no like as you, like you, were, like you were saying earlier Megan like if there's no if there's no uh, if there's no like familial like patrilineal or matrilineal like property claim over children you don't fucking need a family name right like, well, that, and that's like they just have the singular name which I yeah. love because it doesn't it doesn't take the rule of like paternity as a as a claim as a claim that is staked on a person it's assigned and it's assigned by Div Lab, right? Uh, but the, yes, uh, the which I also love. No, I <laughs> yeah. did too. But I also love too that like that because like everyone, like no one on Anaris has the same name. The computer makes sure there is no other Shevik living at the same time. So like it is retaining like some version of like the individual, but in a way that like that's cut from any sort of like property claims or anything like you know what I mean. So I just thought yeah. that was really cool. And it's like, I think that one of the things that their relationship demonstrates is like this, this series of principles or Adonianism like allows for bonds and that that is like very much in keeping with the sort of anarchist ideas. Like it allows for bonds, but it doesn't allow for humans to be owned by other humans. For all of the sort of like openness and the idea that like, you know, utopia is process, is movement, right? Um there are certain things she's pretty clear about. And one of them is that like, you know, the family structure as we understand it is a structure of property. And there's just like not, a, you know, there, there are no two ways about that. Right. And that doesn't mean that people might not love each other or want to be with each other or love their children. Um, you no. know, but right. it means that like the anchor, you know, the anchor of that um, are property, that property relations anchor the family. Um, and like, that's always a thing that like teaching this book along with other like seventies utopias, like you have to kind of like do a little, be a little gentle with because um, <laughs> people, people don't love hearing that, you know? <laughs> I mean, and maybe this is like going too far from the book and into like my own uh, brain space, but like the obligatory 
structure of the family as it exists under capital, I think, makes you like less likely to like your children. Well, yeah. I, I was <laughs> right. Like they like their kids. I was actually just going to say that um, you know I think that all parents uh, in this time of, uh, of of isolation and quarantine would find the most utopian aspect of the book to be like the communal emphasis on child rearing, right? Like, yeah, yeah, and. I mean, it's just like, I, I, I think that, you know, teaching it necessarily has to be like, gentle about that. But you know, it would be my hope that you would say, you know, actually, if we didn't know each other, it would be nicer to hang out with children. <laughs> I mean, and it's absolutely the case that our, uh, you know, sort of Western American uh, ideas of what child rearing is, that it's not that it's like the fucking nuclear family nonsense and that it's not a communal activity has almost no relationship to like family structures in human history. You know, I mean, it is like it is so much a product of capital at a specific moment in time. And again, that's a way that like we see both structures and norms. And then again, it's like, is this a thought that I'm, is this a stupid thought? I don't know. But like that the family is looked at, it's, it's actually fine. We have a fairly easy time seeing it as normative, but we don't always have a good time seeing it as like fake. Uh, well, I, I think one thing that ties into earlier conversation about like how, how people get organ, how people organize themselves and feel attached even in these ways that are very familiar to us, even though like their names are assigned by a computer. So there's not, so, so you're not like, Oh, this is my fit. Like I was George. My father was George. His father was George, mm. but, but you, but you do get this really interesting scene where Shevik meets another person who's a name. that <laughs> sounds like his, which oh, the computer yeah. can't account yeah. for that. That's yeah. the thing. that's like, that's the incalculable thing is that he feels this affinity for this guy. And so, and, and then he has all kinds of other complicated feelings about him too. But those things you can't you can't factor them in to uh, the the like name distribution that that Div Lab is doing. So there's always there are always going to be these random ways that people like collide with each other in ways that make them feel maybe like there's meaning or connection or something. But it doesn't have. But but it's so different than it's so different and so so like the way that we like if there's another katie in class i'm gonna be looking sideways at you know <laughs> other katie yeah i don't know so other, i don't know the three other katies of a certain generation <laughs> <laughs> no ex yeah exactly and so and it's also interesting too that you know they don't you can have a dead Shevik, but you can only have you can have as many dead ones as you want, but you can only have one live one. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, it, it's like this. It's like then then what does it mean about history? I mean, that's maybe a bigger conversation than we can have at this moment. But I do wonder we have there's philosophy and there's practice. And uh, I don't know what 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 history means here mm -hmm. i mean, I I mean especially non-propertarian history right that's not like george begat george begat mm -hmm. george yeah right right and i mean and i think that you know that some of that is the effect of their history itself being quite short right but that is also you know um i i think that i do think that one of the things that in in the way that this 
this novel does its kind of utopian estrangement, that it is asking the reader to think about, to ask themselves questions about, you know, what would you lose or what would it be like to lose this thing that you hold dear or that you care about in order to live better, more fully, more freely with others, right? And that that sense there of like, well, this actually really is a world in which there probably is not time for history, you know, yeah. um, is one thing. Um, privacy is another thing. The sense of that, you know, you, you know, the kind of sense of individuality that we have that's defined by self-ownership. I mean, all of these are things that I think that like, you know, you have to sort of face in reading this and think, um, you know, think about the possibility of that loss, you know, in, in relation to the possibility of what, you know, at least to me is like the extraordinary gain of, um, of equality, of fellowship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's another thing that makes, I mean, I, I think that that sort of question is pretty characteristic of, of feminist utopias, or at least the feminist utopias of the seventies. And I, I think it's like a, um, I think it's a really important question, right? You know, to put yourself in the position, you, you know, like imagining like what you would gain or what would be possible or how you might be different and liberated is one thing, but imagining or having to produce the inventory of these are the things that it freaks me out to think about not having, right? Like history or novels. This is not a society in which uh, people uh, write or read novels. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's right. <sighs> Okay, well, Katie, do you have a game for us? I do have a game <laughs> for you. And uh, so we have read about a utopia today, but we don't live there. We have something <laughs> far from far from a utopia. And so, but I think that we can usefully bring many of the principles uh, of this this fine work to our to our lives. So the one way I think we can do that is uh, we, so there's a great pleasure in deciding whether or not someone is egoizing in this novel. And it's <laughs> just, a, it's a great way to get somebody to shut the fuck up. It's a great way to kind of like assert your superiority over them. And it's also, it also functions as a way to really remind people of the collective. So it's this very complicated concept. And, I have a few examples of the from the from the place you go to get your your top shelf egoizing, which is twitter.com. <laughs> and, oh yeah. And so what I'd like to do is go through just a few uh outstanding moments from the leaders of our society here. And I and we're gonna just I think together decide whether or not this tweet is egoizing or not egoizing okay sounds and, yeah <laughs> and because there is valor and virtue in taking up difficult tasks if if we and we're going to share points collectively here but we can get more points if we if we can find a way they're not egoizing that's the true challenge oh. okay 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 here's the first example it's from our good friend, Louise Mensch. 
the, the the marshal of the Supreme Court is going to help Bob Mueller arrest Trump. Is that the is that the tweet? Well, you're very close, Tristan. It's um. <laughs> My sources say the death penalty for espionage being considered for Stephen K. Bannon. I am pro-life and take no pleasure in reporting this. <laughs> Lot to unpack here. We're saying, and so is it? Is it egoizing or not egoizing? That's the yeah. that's the question. Yeah, I mean, she takes no pleasure. We have to find what it is that's not egoizing besides taking no pleasure. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, this is a tough one. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a humble brag, right? Which is like the height, <laughs> the height of egoizing. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's also delusional about what is possible, uh, or you know, the, the the what the law of I don't know, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, I guess she's, you know, she's, she's making a sacrifice. Yeah, but that's then I true. suppose self-sacrifice usually is egoizing. Right? I mean, I will say, fuck Steve Bannon, and I think that that is like a bribe. I mean, that 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 cuts from everywhere, from resistance Twitter to like hardcore Marx. So that's that's a communal statement there. Um, you know, we generally <laughs> don't favor the death penalty, but okay. Well, I think that together we, I think together we got there. It was, it was, I mean, listen, <laughs> if we're going to make a communal society, we're going to have to, we're going to have to figure out how to live with Louise Mensch too. So. <laughs> And, and and again, I mean, it's you know, like look look for look for uh, look for a community where you can have one. And Steve Bannon's awful, um, you know. So, but. and that's a thing that we believe together. Yes. Yes. Okay, so number two, I'm going to take us down a very well-trodden path. This this genre of tweet has been covered and covered, but I think it's useful for our purposes here. It's by Jacob Wool, and he says the following. Yes. I was in a hipster coffee shop, parentheses, safe space, mm-hmm. here in L.A., Yeah, and the libs were whispering to each other about how Donald Trump is doing great for the economy, got them a raise at work, and will definitely be reelected in 2020. Mm-hmm. Wow. What is, where do we find the not egoizing points there? He acknowledges that the rich love Trump no matter what. Yeah, that's true. Okay. No uh, matter their apparent posture as liberals. The, the obviousness that. of the fantasy scenario he wants us to see that this is um you know untrue made up oh okay see because i was gonna say that the fantasy scenario is so like you know the 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 jake i mean you know he wrote like one of those tweets before that fucking like his hipster coffee shop everyone was dunking on for being obvious fantasy but you're saying that the obviousness of the fantasy actually lets us have like kind of a shared sort of experience of why it's a (laughs) reasonable idea right (laughs) (laughs) that is what i was positing yes That is true. I mean, Jacob Wool is such an absurd clown of a figure yes. that I mean, he I I have laughed with many people about what a shithead he is. You know, okay, Commu- community. <laughs> I, <you> know, <laughs> I think 
that's something. I also think that uh, it was it was a good maybe, you know, he didn't just go to a coffee shop that any old ordinary person could wander into. He went to an an elite hipster coffee shop to kind of try to take down, take it down a notch. That's true. So, yeah. 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 Got a lot going on there. All right. I know this has been challenging for everyone. Mm-hmm. I hope that the last <laughs> emotionally, physically, spiritually, all of it. I hope that the last tweet will be a palate cleanser and and bring us together. Uh, it's by Melania Trump. Um, <laughs> be okay. best. What is the thing that what is that camp campaign? Be best. Be uh, yes. Be, be oh, best. right. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and what the tweet is, so it's a it's a multimedia experience because it's a picture of a beluga whale, and the tweet is, what is she thinking? (laughs) (laughs) What is she thinking? We'll save the whales, right? Like there's a there's an environmental (laughs) message there. <laughs> I mean, sure. I this is a different kind of 70s sci-fi, but I'm hoping that, you know, it's that we might destabilize the idea that only we humans are capable of thought. Uh yeah. that's right, consciousness or conscious thought. A beautiful. Cuz there's a I feel like whales are a big uh big big part of science fiction or uh yeah, it's true there uh there is a lot of whale SF space whales yes that's true and, and, and star as a matter of fact star trek 4 uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most uh, wor- maybe the worst of the star trek movies although it does have kirk saying double dumbass on you which is one of the best <laughs> lines out there so. <laughs> uh oh well i think that i think that we all so so i have heard that pain is what bonds us together Mm -hmm. and the pain that we all felt hearing and reading those tweets (laughs) i think has really produced a collective here today uh and now what i'd like to do is give you just a gift just a gift uh it's a tweet it's a tweet by chuck grassley and it says um (laughs) windsor (laughs) heights windsor heights dairy queen is a good place for you know what? <laughs> <laughs> we sure do, Chuck. Wow. <laughs> I I did not know about that one because my because that's now my favorite Chuck Grassley tweet. The previous one was the one that just said assume deer dead. <laughs> okay. Because he and he and his aide driving around rural Iowa had like hit a deer on the road. And so it was like, it, and it was, it was, there was one tweet and then the follow up tweet was just assume deer dead. I mean, nobody, no, nobody needs uh, more explanatory verbs than assume <laughs> that sentence. Uh, I assumed what's the subject of this uh, sentence. Hey, man, it turns out Chuck Grassley's non-propertarian, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, like he, uh, he excused the notion of a subject in that sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. This was great. Hillary, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. It was really thank, thank you. fun. This was great. Yes. Uh, it was my pleasure as super fun to talk to you. This is just really great. And thank you for having me. Uh, okay. So this has been Better Than Dead. You can find Hillary's podcast 
on Twitter at Podcast on Mars. That's called uh, Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary, right? Yep, that's right. Okay. And you can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find me on Twitter at Tussersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod. And email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com, particularly if you have recommendations for next season, particularly in the mode of Fanny Hill and or other 18th century porn. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, yes. <laughs> More of that, please. Our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonzak of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Um, this is our last regular episode of the season. We will have one more wrap-up episode. It'll be silly. And then be back in late summer, early fall with some conversations about Tristram Shandy and Go Tell It on the Mountain and Upton Sinclair and much more. So thanks, comrades. Thanks.